Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. While you are turning there, let me uh, say lest I forget it later on, that next Sunday morning we will have deacon election in the morning services. And you have the ballots there in your bulletin. Uh, We will not be voting on those ballots today, but we will be voting next Sunday morning in the morning services. Two weeks from today, on Sunday morning, August the 7th, our relocation committee will be bringing a report also during the morning services, and they will also bring bring a recommendation. If you've been driving up and down the property, you know that uh, our contractor's been grading out there. They're grading for the parking lot and the curbing and the foundational layer of asphalt for the parking. Um, and, And as it stands right now, that is all we're doing. And we have the money, of course, to pay for that outright. But the committee is going to be recommending that in addition to that parking lot, we build what we're calling the annex building that is at the rear of the property. Uh, It is a building that will uh, house our Greyhound bus, but it also has some classroom space and a meeting space and some office space. They will be recommending that to us. And uh, whether or not we do that now will be determined by you. The church will vote and whatever way the church votes then that's what we'll do. But that will take place two weeks from today, okay? Two weeks from today on August the 7th. The book of Isaiah, for the most part, was penned sometime during the 600s B.C., maybe the late 700s B.C. Uh, But it's hard to say because you have 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters deal with things that happen during the late 700s, early 600s, the last 27 chapters deal with things that happened during the 500s, the middle 500s B.C. And so it covers a vast amount of territory. And it is the most majestic book of the Old Testament. It pictures God in the most majestic and awesome way that we find anywhere. And uh, as Lindsay read to us just a few moments ago, Uh, Perhaps the most descriptive picture of Jesus on the cross is is found not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but in Isaiah chapter 53. It's an incredible chapter. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 1. We're talking about God questions, the questions God asked in Scripture. Most of the time when God speaks in Scripture, He speaks in either statements that end with a period or commands that end with an exclamation point. But we have found that that's not the only way He speaks. Quite often in the Bible, God speaks through questions. God actually asks questions, and we have looked at a number of those. We will look at one other one today that's found in Isaiah chapter 1. And basically that question is this, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Now look with me as we begin with Isaiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah the son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten down anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer... I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Uh, It's pretty clear that Isaiah is not concerned about popularity as he writes chapter 1. This is not the kind of words that uh, one would introduce himself with if he were trying to win over the affection of people. He starts out in point-blank, blunt honesty, confronting the people of Israel with... Their sin. Let me ask you this question. Now think about this. Do you think that it is ever possible for God to command you to do something and you do it? I mean, you obey it. 
And yet God is displeased with your doing it. Now think about that. Do you think that it would be possible for God to command you to do something and you do it, and yet God is displeased with your having done it? Now, without having time to think about it a whole lot, I don't know if this would be your answer, but my answer without a whole lot of time to think about it would be, no, that's not possible. If God commands me to do something and I do what he commands me to do, he's not going to be displeased with what I do because I'm doing exactly what he told me to do. But then again, as we look at scripture, I'll tell you what I find about scripture. Scripture defies our stereotypical answers about life. Don't begin for a minute to start taking these cliched answers that we bring out of our little tiny boxes that we try to fit God in and try to say that, oh, all the Bible says so-and-so. All the Bible may not say so-and-so. Actually, this particular case that Isaiah begins with in his prophecy is one that tells us that it is actually possible for God to command you to do something and you do what he commands you to do. And when you do it, he's not pleased with you. Now, how can that happen? Well, I think it's very important for us to uh, to remember that when 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 doing God's will, when we are seeking to do what God wants us to do, which, by the way, is, goes against our nature, it is not in our natural being to want to do what God wants us to do. The natural inclination of the human heart is to go opposite God, not congruent with God. That doesn't mean that there's not good in all of us. In fact, um, I think most Christians believe that God has, has given a common, what we call a common grace in the heart of every or almost every human being. That's why you can see sometimes people who are not Christians at all who do some wonderfully great things. There is a common grace in all of us. But at the same time, there is a common uh, ungodliness that is also inherent in each of us. It's a sin nature that's in all of us. And more often than not, that sin nature in us rears its ugly head in sometimes subtle ways, sometimes very obvious ways. And we do things naturally that are opposed to what God wants us to do. As a result, there are times when, when God gives us a command and we follow that command, but there's something about the following of that command that is so corrupted by our, our uh, anti-God nature that we displease God in the following of his command. When we're trying to do God's will, I believe that God looks at three different questions related to us doing his will that you and I need to be constantly aware of. Now, here are these three questions. First of all, what are we doing and is what we're doing God's will. What are we doing? Very important question. The second question that we also ought to ask, and all these three questions need to be asked at the same time. Second question is this, how are we doing what we are doing? And is the way that we are doing it the way that God wants it done? What are we doing? How are we doing it? 
You see, the what we do, is it, it, it describes the actual actions we take, but the how we do it gets beyond the actions to the motivation and to the, the, the way in which we do something. God is interested in that. And then the third question that I think God wants us to think about as we're trying to do His will, not only what are you doing and how are you doing it, but number three, what is the result of what you're doing, and is that result the result that God intended? All three of those questions must be answered in the way that God wants it answered and must be carried, carried out in the way God wants them to be carried out for God to be totally pleased with what we're doing. Now, let's apply those three questions to the people Isaiah addresses at the opening of his book of prophecy in chapter 1. What are they doing? What are they doing? They're actually doing something that is in God's will. They could answer that first question with the affirmative that what they're doing is God's will. But what are they doing? Here's, here's in simple terms, here's what they're doing. They're worshiping. They're worshiping. Now, their worship at the time that Isaiah lived, which is around 2,600, 2,700 years ago, their worship is markedly different from our worship. Number one, there were no pews. Number two, uh, there was no one that they called a preacher. They had some folks who stood up and, and read scripture, but no, the word preacher was not there. The word pastor was not there. The word church was not there. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, had not been written by John Newton 2,700 years ago. You did not have any Jesus paid it all 2,700 years ago. It was markedly different. Not only that, but the primary ritual in Old Testament ancient Jewish worship was not the singing of songs, although they did that. And it was not the reading of scripture, although they did that. The primary ritual of Old Testament worship was the sacrificing of an animal in the worship service. Usually it was a lamb or a goat. That lamb would be without any blemishes. It would be a male lamb. And people would come to the temple bringing that lamb. The lamb would be slain. It would be killed right there in the worship. Its blood would be poured on the altar. It would be sprinkled around the place. Can you imagine the picture? Can you imagine the smell? I mean, these people have filled the temple. All of them have brought their own animals. This doesn't smell like a sanctuary. It smells like a barn. The temple smells like a barn. It smells a combination of hay and old animals and new animals and blood. Many folks here today would not be able to handle it. I couldn't handle it. I'd be fainting every single Sabbath in the temple because I can't stand the sight of blood, and let alone the smell of it. I'd be laid out on the floor. People would say, look at there, Jimmy Orr. He sure is spiritual. He's slain in the spirit every single Sabbath. <laughs> we look at that, and, and to the modern mind, that is gross and inhumane. And it is, and it was. But keep in mind, we can't judge a 2,700-year-old culture by 21st century culture. 
They just didn't look at things the same way. For them, the slaying of a sacrificial animal and the sprinkling of that animal's blood on the altar as a sin offering or an atonement offering was just as common as us singing It Is Well With My Soul on Sunday morning. It's just as common as opening up the Bible and reading from Isaiah 1. They didn't think about the inhumaneness of it. They didn't think about the grossness of it. They didn't think about how ridiculous it may have looked. For them, it was the common practice of every temple worship. Not only that, it was also the common practice of many other religions that were pagan. Animal sacrifice was widespread. Now, for the Israelites, why would they sacrifice animals? Because they were commanded to do so. We're not going to go back and read the book of Leviticus. I know you wanted to. I know that you were eager to come in here and read Leviticus. It's kind of like a John Grisham novel without John Grisham. I mean, you know, it reads like, you know, a page turner. No, it doesn't. Uh, But throughout the book of Leviticus, the Israelites are given instructions by God on how to carry out animal sacrifices to atone or cover for their sin. That's all the book of Leviticus is about. And so when you ask the question, what were they doing? And was it God's will? They were worshiping. And in their worship, they were offering animal sacrifices. And chapter 1 indicates that they were also praying. And not only were they offering sacrifices, but they were doing it a lot. He says, what to me is the, here it is, multitude of your sacrifices. Later on, he says, he says, Stop bringing me all of your prayers because when you pray all of your prayers, implying that there were many, he said, I'm not going to hear you. And incense. They had incense in their worship. You know why they had incense? Because the smell of the animals and the blood was so bad, they would light incense to try to cover up the stench. Today we just do it because we have no clue why we do it. But they did it to cover up the stench. He says, your incense is stench to me. You you light up your incense in order to cover the, the stench. But he says, your incense is even stinkier than the stinky. But the sacrifices they were offering was in accordance with God's will. What are they doing? They're worshiping through sacrifices, prayer, and incense. Was that God's will? Yes, it was. Now, the second question, how are they doing it? Now, we don't know exactly, because the text doesn't just stipulate plainly what it was about the way that they were offering this worship that was displeasing to God. But one thing we can pretty well deduce from this passage of Scripture is that the way they were doing it was not pleasing to God. He was not pleased with how they were doing what they were doing. He was pleased with what they were doing because that he had explicitly commanded them in Leviticus. But he was not pleased with how they were doing what they were doing. And so he comes down on them very hard. But then the third question, and and to this question, there is a definite answer in this chapter. What is the result? And was the result the one that God intended? Here was the result. No result. They worshiped. They They offered a multitude of sacrifices. They offered an abundance of prayers. They had incense until the, to the point where someone with allergies couldn't even stand to be in the place. But when they walked out of the temple, their lives had not been touched. 
Their hearts had not been changed. Their behavior was just like it had been before they came into the place. There was no result of their worship. So when we're doing God's will or trying to do God's will, ask these three questions. What am I doing? And is what I'm doing what God wants me to do? How am I doing it? And am I doing it in the way that God wants it done? And what is the result? And is the result that I am accomplishing the result that God intended? Now that brings me to, uh, to this subject, which really is the whole subject of this chapter, worship about worship. Now we can apply these questions to anything we do, but Isaiah specifically applies these questions to the worship of the people of Israel. And so I think it would be good for us to think about our own worship, not just our public worship here in this church, although it includes that, but also your private worship. Do you worship in private? Do you ever spend time in a given day, hopefully every day, just alone with God? Maybe reading his word, maybe singing a scripture, or maybe just praying, or maybe just sitting in silence and waiting for God to speak to you, or maybe just enjoying his presence, whether or not he speaks to you. Do you, do you privately worship as well as publicly worship? Now, I know because you're here, At the very least, you publicly worship. You worship in public, in a church setting. I'm going to assume that most of us will worship privately, at least at some time during a given week. Let me just assume that, okay? Now, here's the question. Are you ready for this? Concerning your worship in private and in a corporate church setting, When does your worship, when does our worship become sickening to God? When does he become so repulsed by our worship that it makes God want to throw up? You say, well, God is God. He could never want to throw up. It's not possible for God to get sick. Oh, yeah, it really is. In Revelation chapter chapter 3, there was a church called Laodicea, and the Lord, in red letters, says to them, he He says, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to spew you, literally, vomit you out of my mouth. Every translation that you'll read today has softened that a little bit because people don't like the idea of God throwing up. But there are certain things that turn the stomach of God and it is possible, according to this chapter, for our worship, both in church and in private, to turn the stomach of God. So when does our worship Sicken God. I have three answers for you, and this is not an exhaustive list, but these are three answers that I believe are appropriate. First of all, our worship sickens God when it is only based on emotion. When it's only based on emotion. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this, but I have been, and I'm assuming maybe some of you have to. I've been in churches before that everything they did in the worship service was based on emotional feeling. 
I have been in others where there was absolutely no emotion at all. Worship becomes sickening to God when it is based only on emotional feeling. Worship that is sickening to God, on the other hand, has no emotion whatsoever. You ever been in a service like that? Where everything is mechanical? Everything is according to script? There is nothing that is outside the lines? I mean, it's almost like if you get off script, uh, all of a sudden, everything goes into chaos. Or maybe in private. All of your prayers are recited. There's nothing wrong with a recited prayer unless your recited prayers are all you ever pray and you have become so familiar with those recited prayers that you just shoot through those in haste and the words mean absolutely nothing. Worship that has no emotion is sickening to God because it's meaningless. Listen. You and I believe that our eternal destiny depends upon our relationship with the Lord. If that is true, then it is the single most important relationship that we will ever have. And if it is the single most important relationship that we will ever have, how can we not be passionate about it? How can we not be emotional about it? We must be. And yet, there are those who worship with absolutely no emotion. I believe that, that worship that is authentic, worship that re- makes the heart of God rejoice, is a worship that is emotional, that has passionate feeling about it. And we're not just standing there as zombies in the worship service. But then on the other hand, Worship services can, can be too solely based on emotion. I was uh, in a church several years ago, and, uh, and, the, and the preacher, it wasn't me, but there was another preacher who was preaching in a revival. And there was a lady over to the side of the church, and she was weeping. She had wept all through the service. She wept all through the sermon. And after the service was over, someone who had noticed this woman weeping went up, not to her, but to the man who was preaching and said, I noticed that woman was weeping all through the service. Can you tell me, do you know anything about her? Do you know why she was weeping? And he says, don't you know? He said, she was crying because the Holy Spirit was getting a hold of her. Now, the Holy Spirit may have been getting a hold of her. And I'll tell you, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, sometimes he will make you cry. Sometimes tears of sadness, sometimes tears of joy. But he didn't know the lady. He just assumed because there was emotion in her that it had to be the presence of the Holy Spirit moving her. But he didn't know that for sure. I mean, in in reality, she may have worn apostolic sandals to church that day and a lady with a three-inch stiletto heel happened to step on her big toe as she was fellowshipping with folks and it made her cry the whole service. The Holy Spirit may have had nothing to do with that. Or he may have had everything to do with that. Worship cannot be totally based on emotion. But worship that is authentic cannot be without any emotion either. There must be a balance between the two. Not mechanical, but not just on a whim. 
Not so mechanical that it's scripted on one hand, but on the other hand, not so based on feeling that that depending on the feeling you get in the morning, if you have a good case of indigestion, it'll affect the it'll affect what you do in worship. No, not that at all. But a balance between between the content and the in, in intelligence, the mentality of worship and the feeling, the emotion, the passion of worship. But there's one other way that I believe God's stomach is turned by our worship. And this is most evident in this chapter. Our worship sickens God when it does not produce changed lives. God is not into worship just to alleviate our Sunday morning guilt if we don't come to worship. God is not into worship just because it's what mom and dad raised us up to do. That's fine, but that's not what God is into worship about. God is into worship for two reasons. Number one, for His own praise and for changed lives. When you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, if we really believe that God is who God says God is, and if we experience Him, I mean His very presence in a worship service, Considering how human we are and how God, God is, if we are ever in His presence in worship, how can we walk away the same? How can we possibly walk away from His presence after having experienced Him? How can we walk away and be the same? There was a young couple who had gotten involved in a, a pretty freewheeling Christian church in Arkansas. And they hadn't been in church in a while, and their grandmother, had, who lives in another state, had tried to get them to go to church. And so finally they, they visited a church in Arkansas, and it was a freewheeling church. I mean, the, the pastor jumped, and he ran up and down the aisle, and he, he hollered a little bit, and he made sure that he hollered at some points, and he got real low at other points, and, and back up hollering again, and back low at other points. And while he was up there preaching, there were people raising their hands, not like you did, folks. They were raising their hands. Some people were getting up and they would start following him around like a little chain, you know, a little train. Then they'd start singing and people would be going all over the place, shouting and running around. And this couple was somehow impressed by this worship service. It was lively. And it got to the point where each Sunday afternoon they would call his grandmother and say, you know, Grandma, this is really... We found a church, it's really a great church, and of course she was rejoicing that they'd found a, a good church until they started describing to Grandma the kind of church that it was. With the preacher hollering and shouting, with people jumping up and down, amening and, and following, chasing the preacher around while he, was, while he was preaching, and people jumping up and down and shouting while there was singing going on. And they said, you know, Grandma, you've got to come, you've got to come and go to this church with us. This is the way we believe God wants worship to be done. 
And Grandma didn't say anything. For several weeks, they'd call every Sunday afternoon. Grandma, wow, you got to come to this church. You got to come to this church, Grandma. This is the way God wants worship to be done. And after about five or six weeks of it, of them calling every Sunday afternoon, finally, the, the, the fella said, Grandma, you know, we've been trying to get you to come and go to our church because we tell you how great it is and how this is the way God wants us to worship. And you haven't said anything in, re- in response to that. And his grandmother said, well, son, I don't care how much they run around. I don't care how many times they raise their hands or don't raise their hands. I don't care how high they jump. What I'm really concerned about is what they do when they come down. In some churches, the, the worship is silent and reverent and powerful. In other churches, it's lively with hand-raising and shouting and, and lots of movement, and it's powerful. God is not into these worship wars that all of our Christian churches are in, I don't believe. But I'll tell you what God is concerned about, and it's evident from this passage in Isaiah. He's saying this. He's saying no matter what you do in your worship, no matter how high you jump or no matter how, how, uh, how high you don't jump, when you come down, when you go out of the building, I'm interested in how that worship affects your life. And let's face it, if you and I come in here to worship every Sunday and we leave and we're not, there's something, there's not something about us that's different. Have we really worshiped? Shouldn't something be different about us if we've been in the presence of Almighty God? Cal Lamon wrote an article in Leadership Magazine back several years ago about worship. And he said this, he said, Worship, like what Isaiah was confronting, is like inviting a congregation to come for the purpose of chewing on Kleenex. Isaiah says, you folks... You're doing the sacrifices, you're saying the prayers, you're lighting up the incense, you're reading the scriptures, but he said, you might as well be chewing Kleenex. Those of you who've been here long enough, you remember that one time in the Lord's Supper, instead of having the bread and the juice, we decided to shake it up a little bit. Miss Rebecca remembers this. Because she looked at me kind of crazy when I made this request to her. I said, Miss Rebecca, I, I want to convey a message that sometimes we're willing to, 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 uh, uh, to substitute anything for the real thing. Anything for the real Jesus. And so I said, in the Lord's Supper this, this week, I want you to fill the cups not with juice, but with water. And instead of having the bread, I want us to find some box from some company that has delivered a product to us that's full of that styrofoam popcorn. She said, I'll do you one better than that. She said, I've got a box of styrofoam popcorn that's been in my attic for about 20 years. (laughs) And I've been wondering what to do with it. She said, I'll bring that stuff. She said, in fact, it's not as big as the regular styrofoam popcorn. It's about the size of a communion wafer. I said, let's do it. The only problem with it was it looked too real. And we had some folks swallow that bad boy. 
They literally thought that it was communion bread. They said, well, you know, most of the time that communion bread doesn't have much of a taste anyway. And so I didn't think anything about it. I just popped it in because I, I trusted my preacher and didn't think he'd pull something like this over us. Sometimes our worship, if it's only based on emotion or if it has absolutely no emotion, or more importantly, if it doesn't result in a changed life. Our worship is like chewing on styrofoam. My prayers in the closet of my house are like chewing on Kleenex. Because I run through them, just trying to alleviate my guilt. And I don't take the time to allow God to really change my life. This service is about God changing your life. For some of you, that change is going to be you making the initial decision to invite Jesus Christ into your life to be your Savior and your Lord. It may not make sense to you. It may seem like something ridiculous to you. Or it may just be something you just flat out don't understand. But it is, according to the Scripture, according to God's own Word, it is what we need to have eternal life. Do you know Jesus? Has there been a time in your life when you've invited Him into your heart as your Savior? And Lord, the moment you do, it will change your life. But for some of us, we've already, we could talk about the time when we invited Jesus to be our Savior. But it's been a while. And the honeymoon period with Jesus has kind of faded into ordinariness. And we kind of need a new jolt of spiritual electricity, don't we, from time to time? Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a time this morning for your life to be changed through a rededication of your life. Not being saved again, but a rededication of your life to Christ. Maybe God needs you, wants you to join the fellowship of this church. How many people in our day go to a church, not just this one, but anyone, they'll go to a church for years and years without joining the church. What's up with that? If the church is satisfying enough for you to attend it over a long period of time, isn't it satisfying enough for you to join it? Yeah. Think about that. What does God want to do in your life this morning to change your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm thankful to you for the people who lead our worship. I'm thankful to you for those times you speak to us in both our corporate worship here at church and in our private worship at home. Lord, sometimes we can get off track in the things that we do for you. We can actually do something that you command us to do, and yet there's something about how we do it, and there's something about the result of what we do that is just out of kilter. Lord, I pray for changed lives this morning. I pray for someone to come to know Christ who did not know you when they came in this building. I pray for some Christian who has become lukewarm to get fired back up so that when they leave, they're going to be spiritually hotter than they were when they came in. I pray for someone who 
has been praying about a church home, I pray that they come and join this church. Lord, I pray for changed lives. Let us not be in another Sunday morning worship service where we came and went and nothing was different. Change us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.